On this episode of The Jukebox, we sat down with Laurel Bestock, an associate professor of Egyptology and archaeology at Brown University. She works with all aspects of material culture of the Nile Valley and Egypt and Nubia. She recently published a book on Egyptian warfare called Power and Violence in Ancient Egypt, Images and Ideology Before the New Kingdom. In our conversation with Laurel, we talked about her early interest in the past and what happens when law enforcement and stratigraphy collide. goes back to when I was so young uh, that it's a little bit difficult to find exactly the threads. But I do remember when I was oh maybe 10 years old, my parents had a coffee table book that was aerial photographs of archaeological sites. And I remember simply being fascinated by those. And I, I sort of had the idea that I wanted to be an archaeologist. I did go to a summer camp um, starting when I was 13, that was was a college prep summer camp. And I remember one of the reasons I was interested in doing that was because there was an archaeology class. It was the worst archaeology class I ever took. Uh, but at least the idea was there. And I, I found that I still loved the field even after I took this horrible class. And that sort of suggested to me that, that I was really on the right track. And I must have been 12 or 13 also when I discovered in my parents' Uh, in their bookshelves, they, my parents had enormous collections of mystery stories, both contemporary stuff and trashy stuff and classics. And I became a mystery addict myself from from very young. I started picking up Rex Stout's novels when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12. And I discovered on my parents' bookshelves some novels by an author called Elizabeth Peters that were set in Victorian Egypt. And the protagonists were archaeologists of Egypt. And it was one completely badass feminist archaeologist. And I was so taken by these. I think I read these novels, I don't know, 15 or 20 times each. Oh, wow. I, I just read them and read them and read them. And so my my desire to be an archaeologist and be an archaeologist of Egypt really uh, was based more or less on fiction. And from long before I had any idea what an academic career actually was. So it was it was this fascination with this, not just the place, but also the process of accessing the place. And so archaeology and this place, Egypt, and very much idealized and fictionalized in my head because that's how I came to it. And so uh, did this interest in archaeology at all factor into your choice of college? <laughs> this is, my interest, my early interest in archaeology completely has dictated what I've done with my life more or less since that time. Uh, and I've been very lucky to have the opportunities to follow that. So uh, back before the internet was really a thing, when I was looking at colleges and trying to decide where to go, I I had actually I learned two things about Brown that made it my top choice college. So I learned that Brown had an archaeologist who was digging at Petra, which was a site I had heard about and I was fascinated uh, with. And I also learned that Brown had the only Egyptology department in the United States. Now, I've since learned that, in fact, many other universities teach Egyptology. They just don't do it from within an Egyptology department. But when I learned that as a sophomore in high school, I thought I need to be at Brown. And in fact, I did come to Brown as an undergraduate. Um, and really, some of my early interests, again, before I knew what it was like to be an academic at all, uh, some of my early interests have really been threads through my whole career. So when I was in high school, I got three books on Egyptology. I got I had a special order from England 
again, before the internet, uh, Alan Gardner's grammar of Middle Egyptian so that I could try and start teaching myself some of the language. But the two books that I discovered in bookstores that really were very formative for me um, were Walter Emery's Archaic Egypt and uh, Alan Hoffman's Egypt Before the Pharaohs. And I remember these books and, and my early interest in early Egypt and how Egypt became Egypt, which is something I've continued to work on. And so yeah, that was already in my head before I came to Brown as an undergraduate. When I went to graduate school, you know, I had this great foundation in Egyptian language and in archaeology, although not in Egyptian archaeology, which wasn't taught at that time at Brown. And I knew I wanted to work on the early site of Abydos. And again, I was very fortunate I applied to graduate school to work with the the guy who was working on that, he was a big name in the field, um, David O'Connor, and I was fortunate to work at Abydos for many years as a graduate student and even afterwards. So having gone to Brown and now you're teaching at Brown, what's it like to have been here in such a different time as a student and now as a teacher? It's been marvelous returning to Brown. There is a lot that's changed. The world has changed, but there's a lot that's that's very similar at Brown. And it, it really felt like coming home. So when I left Brown to go to graduate school, I already, again, I sometimes feel that my life is on a track. I knew I wanted to come back to Brown because at that time, Brown had an Egyptology department, which was entirely philological, and had an archaeology department, which was more or less entirely classical archaeology. And so Knowing that I wanted to specialize in Egyptian material culture and knowing that, that to do that at Brown would be to create a new position and, and to be a bridge between the departments that I concentrated in was really a dream. And uh, the position that I now hold was, in fact, created at the, at the time I was graduating from graduate school. And it was created in order to bridge those two departments. And I was fortunate enough to come back and and do that. Um, I had been gone for nine years. So I had lived in New York and gotten my PhD. I'd worked at the Metropolitan Museum briefly as well. So I was a lot older when I came back. But in fact, when I first moved back to Providence, I, I lived in a house that was very close to where I had lived as a freshman. So I was in Pembroke as a freshman, and living on that side of town. And the very first couple of weeks when I was back, I was walking the same routes and uh, it was a little weird to find myself in the classroom behind the podium instead of in front of the classroom. And I remember I went to Kebab and Curry. I had gone to Kebab and Curry, marvelous Indian restaurant, so much when I was an undergraduate and they, they knew me. And the first week I was back at Brown, I went there for lunch and they recognized me and gave me a free lunch and said, welcome back. And so it really was like coming home. And it was a fairly quick transition to feel that I belonged on the other side of the podium and to say, well... I was a student here. Now I'm a professor here and I can give back to this community that meant so much to me. And it's really been great, not just as a scholar, but as a human being to be embedded in a community that I already feel part of. So the podcast gets its name, the Jukebox, from the Institute, the Jukowski Institute for Archaeology in the Ancient World, which gets its name uh, from Martha Jukowski, um, whom I think you know probably better than anyone in the department um, because you knew her... Uh, as your teacher uh, and a mentor. And um, I'm wondering if there's any uh, stories you can share about her or memories uh, that you'd like our listeners to, to hear. My close connection to Martha is one of the reasons why I'm so happy at Brown. There's no question. And she has been a superb mentor. I think it's it's really a rare gift to be able to watch someone grow up from the age of 18 and and then be colleagues and respect each other as colleagues. And it's really something I credit Martha for, that she has been uh, encouraging of me at every step of the way. And, and now we are friends, um, whereas once she was really my mentor. There are so many stories. It's not just that I know her. She, of course, knows me, which can be a little bit embarrassing at times. So <laughs> I did come to Brown hoping to work in Petra. And I do remember my 
freshman year, I took a class. It was the archaeology of Iran with Martha. And I, I went up to her after class. I was so nervous. I was a shy person. And I said, Martha, I really want, Professor Joukowsky, I really want to go to Petra this summer and, and dig with you if possible. I've already had a couple of field seasons in Ireland, so I have some background. Um, please, will you take me on, on your season? And she said, no, I don't take freshmen, but I'll give you the chance to try to convince me. And I tried to convince her, and I did convince her. And so I was actually able to go to Petra uh, my, after my freshman year, after my sophomore year, and after my junior year. So I had three long summer seasons in Petra. Um, and very quickly, she was willing to give me um, trench supervisor status so that I was training other undergraduates. Uh, she, Martha allowed me to, I, I found some amazing stuff. I found a really a cache of broken pottery and gilded architectural fragments one summer. And it was a, it was a substantial amount of Nabataean pottery, which is very beautiful stuff, um, but at that point really hadn't been adequately published in many ways. And Martha gave me the opportunity to publish the material that I had excavated as an undergraduate. Uh, so she has supported me from the very beginning, and I learned an immense amount methodologically, but also an immense amount about how to be generous as a scholar from her. And I, it's really something I, I feel like I can give back to this community, that she has given us at Brown, and, and which is named after her. And it's, it's her spirit more than anything in particular that I think I can give. I should say one, one last story about Martha. Um, I, one thing that she did that I am reluctant to do is to take undergraduates into the field. And that's in part because I work in Egypt and the Sudan, and that's really not a place that it's easy to take undergraduates. But it's in part because I remember myself. And I don't think Martha will ever fail to mention in front of an audience where we speak about our, our long connection with one another, that my room was a complete mess in Petra. It embarrassed her when the Minister of Antiquities would come by and see the disaster I could make of a room with only one suitcase full of stuff. So you mentioned that working in Sudan and Egypt is a hard place to work, especially with undergrads, but you do take some grad students and you're currently working at Urinardi and it's very isolated. So what's that like being with a very small amount of people in such an isolated place for so long? It's one of the things I really love about working at Orinardi is that it is so remote. And I love it for a couple of reasons. It's quite nice to be off grid and not be contactable and really be immersed in the archaeology and not have the kinds of distractions that are, are present in daily life. But I also think that the, the very harshness of it, in fact, raises important research questions for us. So we have to interact with the landscape and the very few local people who are there in ways that are not mediated by electricity or architecture or a steady food supply. Um, the, the kinds of things we take for granted, even at most archaeological sites around the world, are not there at Orinardi. And so... I remember, for instance, when we first got to the site, there's a lot of standing architecture at Orinardi. It's an enormous fortress, and the walls in some cases are still preserved a couple of meters high. And we thought, well, this is great. We don't have any modern buildings, but we can set up our tents inside the ancient fortress, and, and what a great place to be. And within two minutes, we realized it's completely impossible because the fortress is up on a hill. It's a very defensible spot, but it's also very difficult to get water up to the fortress. And since we are dependent on the Nile water, we filter the water to drink, we use it to bathe and wash, we really need to be close to the water. That's it's not something you think about. What what it was like for ancient people to have access to water is not something you think about when you can just turn on the tap in a dig house. And so that, the difficulty of getting food, you know, we have, there, there are some farmers nearby. We get abundant eggplants and onions and beans without even paying for them. People just bring us things. Uh, and that that kind of bounty of the earth is something that I don't have 
the same relationship to when I'm working in Egypt. On the other hand, staples, things like oil and flour, uh, we have to get from far away. Our cooking gas, we have to get from far away. And we don't have a regular supply chain. So we really have to be thinking in advance. These are the kinds of things that the ancient Egyptians also, who are garrisoning this fortress, they would have been getting their grain from Egypt itself. That supply, the the work that it took to get that food is something that was integral to their lives. And I have much more access to that precisely because it's difficult for me and I have to think about those things out there. So yeah, I'm, I'm 40 years old. My back gets sore camping for a month. Um, but I think there's, they're fundamentally interesting as well as marvelous things about being in such a, a remote place where there's no light pollution. Uh, they're beautiful things as well as difficult things. It all adds to the experience. So during the shopping period at Brown, there was a lot of hype around your most recent class, Fighting Pharaohs, about Egyptian warfare, and you just published a book about Egyptian warfare. So what's it like teaching on that subject to a lot of people who aren't from the discipline? And how it's an exciting subject itself, but how do you teach them the historical aspects beyond just the exciting stuff? Sure. Egyptian warfare is a really exciting class to teach, and it's one I've taught a couple of times at Brown. I don't teach it very often because I want it to stay fresh for me, uh, and also I, I want it to be exciting for the students. Uh, it's a topic that's interested me for a long time. Again, this goes back even to my undergraduate days. So when I was at Brown, I wrote my senior honors thesis about the fortresses in Nubia that I am now working on. At that time, we thought they were all underwater and that it would not be possible to do new work. So my interest in warfare and in uh, military aspects of, of the kingship of Egypt goes goes way back. And I knew I wanted to teach a class on this early on at Brown. The class has evolved enormously in part because of the process of writing the book. And so when I first started teaching warfare, I was really distressed that there were no good secondary sources about early warfare in Egypt. I said, I want to fill that hole. And I set out to write a book, in fact, about early Egyptian warfare. And I found very quickly that I didn't think it was possible to do that. And, and that's really because the types of sources we have are so inadequate to writing a sort of narrative history of warfare uh, that you can't. But what I, I found also quite quickly and ultimately ended up thinking was much more interesting was that one of the reasons we can't do that is because the sources we do have, many of them are, are imagery, are art that is so heavily ideological, that is carrying a message that is so different from simply writing a report about war uh, that we can't separate it. We can't go back. We can't say, well, what are the actual events behind that? So that might be disappointing in terms of our ability to reconstruct the history of Egyptian warfare, but it's great in terms of what it tells us about how the Egyptians thought about violence and what they thought the purpose of making pictures of violence was. So in the end, it wasn't, in fact, a book about warfare. It was a book about, about royal ideology and why on earth the Egyptians make so many pictures of battle and of kings trampling and smiting enemies. So I like to talk about pop culture with my guests on the show. And I want to ask about, um, I mean, obviously for Egypt, there are lots of examples of um, adaptations of historic history or myths um, that are very easy to pick apart and criticize. Um, but I guess what I want to know is, are there any adaptations of Egyptian history or mythology or whatever um, that you particularly enjoy or that you see merits in? So aside from the novels that I loved as a kid, uh, which were definitely written for a popular audience and not for a scholarly one, 
uh, I don't really engage all that closely with the pop culture around Egypt. You're right. I think that there is a lot of it. It's a very easy thing to bring to the public. Um, you know, we do this series at Brown, this uh, see the movie, then think about it, where we show recent movies. And then we have a panel of archaeologists speaking about their use of the past. And I end up doing this all the time because a lot of these are movies about Egypt. So, you know, we just did the Tom Cruise, the mummy, and even the Transformers has some ancient Egyptian stuff. We did Gods of Egypt, which is you know, a horrifying movie with some, <laughs> some serious problems. But I think my, my real feeling about that is is that, yeah, it's often very badly done in terms of the presentation of the past, but that's not really the point. And I can see that there are different purposes to how we present the past in different contexts, and I'm really okay with that. So I don't myself particularly uh, watch the things that are coming out um, of, of Egypt for popular audiences, because my own engagement with ancient Egypt is really different. But I think it has a, an enormous value in terms of exciting people about the field. It can be a sort of a gateway drug to go towards more scholarly engagements with Egypt. Or it can just be entertaining, and that has value as well. So I don't resent it, even though I don't myself partake in it. Okay. Are, there, are there any, um, you know, if someone contacted you from Hollywood who wanted you to help them craft a script for an upcoming show or a movie... Uh, what what do you think are there particular historical events or uh, themes that you think you'd like to see represented in pop culture? Well, I think, in fact, ancient Egypt has when we get away from the simplicity with which it's often treated, there are, there are themes that really resonate with our own culture and time. So one of the things that was criticized about gods of Egypt, for instance, was that it was basically racist. You have a bunch of white people. When you actually look at um, issues of ethnicity and identity in ancient Egypt, they're very complex. And the relationships between, say, Egypt and its neighbors, um, there, are, there are no binary identities. We really have a melting pot in southern Egypt between Egypt and Nubia. And I would love to put some of that in front of a popular audience. I think you could tell a really interesting narrative, for instance, about the period we call the first intermediate period when there were there was a breakdown of the central government in Egypt and you have civil war and you have warlords in the process of knitting the country back together when you in fact have a multi-ethnic society in Egypt and how how that's playing out in terms of battles, but also in terms of the literature that gets written. Um, that I think is quite relevant for our time and it's historically accurate in a way that I would hope, again, would be both interesting and then draw people in. So I'm not, That's my skills are definitely not in, on the, the script ideas. Uh, if someone were to come to me and say, could you help us? I would definitely, I think, be able to, to float some things that I think could provide points of reference. Speaking of the hypothetical scenario in which a Hollywood <laughs> scriptwriter contacts you, um, you do have people contact you out of the blue sometimes to comment on Breaking news stories, breaking maybe in air quotes. Um, can you talk more about some of these experiences you've had and the time that you spend responding to them? I, I get contacted by a wide range of people. It's partly because Egypt is really popular in the public eye. It's partly because I have a completely unique name, so I'm extremely easy to find once you've heard of me. Uh, and these run the gamut. So I get, you know, I get inquiries from eighth graders who are working on school projects. I just the other day got an email from someone who claims that after 10 years of being an atheist, he's figured out that he is, in fact, a god. Um, that's <laughs> not that uncommon. I didn't respond to that when I usually respond to the eighth graders. I it, Sometimes I, it, I pick and choose and it's not even there's no rhyme or reason to what I choose to respond to. Um, I do. I even will. I, I'm interviewed for documentaries sometimes uh, as well. 
but they're amusing. I think that I don't mind being contacted from outside. In terms of the breaking news, again, it's sort of, you know, I recognize that what the public interest in Egypt is, is is not the same as mine and that that's okay. And I'm absolutely willing to talk about what the significance of a find is, why we should care about it, um, what the relevance is for ancient Egypt today. I got contacted about Ben Carson's idea that the pyramids were granaries. I took that interview and laughed. Um, so I, I'm not unhappy to engage with that um, within music. There are some limits. So I'm an undergrad in Egyptology, and I've taken many classes with you. And sometimes your daughters, Rose and Nora, come in. And um, Rose is a very vocal participant in the class. And so what's it like talking to her about the past? And, you know, sometimes she has questions that are way more intelligent than I could even think of. And so what? how, how is she come into this interest in the past? So Rose has been steeped in Egyptology since she was tiny. Both of my daughters have. I had Rose when I was a graduate student and Nora when I was a, a very junior professor at Brown. They both have gone to Egypt with me every time I've gone to Egypt since they were been, they've been born and Rose learned to walk in Egypt. I, I called Rose my dissertation deadline when I was pregnant and then <laughs> failed to meet that deadline. But, uh, you know, so I was nursing her and reading my dissertation to her long before she could actually absorb the ideas. So in a, in a sense, they had no no chance to avoid this. And their own interests in my work is is different. Rose definitely loves coming to class. And she, there's an element of social display in that. She likes to be seen by you guys as <laughs> as knowledgeable. And But she is also really interested. And so when I was working on my warfare book, for instance, I would give her stacks of Xeroxed images and say, OK, you know, go through here and, you know, find all of these images where somebody's holding an axe for me. That would really help. I'd like to sort these. And she would do it. She's interested in that. Nora's interest is more in the, the physical remains of things. She really likes animals and she wants to be my faunal expert. So we actually pick up animal bones and sometimes animals that still have some flesh on them and work on defleshing them so that Nora can learn her bones so that she can come out and be useful for me in the field. So I really, I don't expect either of them to be archaeologists. They have other interests as well, but it's it's such a joy for me that I can incorporate them into my life, into my field work, and that you guys as students have welcomed them here. They feel so comfortable at the Institute and I feel really lucky about that. So you just finished your warfare book, as we've been talking about. What's next for you in the publishing and researching world? I have two big projects that I'm really working on right now, one of which is ongoing and one of which I'm about to kick off. So uh, my ongoing field research at Orinardi in the Sudan, which I undertake with my co-director, Christian Knoblauch, a longtime friend from grad school, um, looking at Egyptian colonialism and interactions between people in a border zone is something that uh, will continue to animate my work for quite a while. And that has methodological implications as well. So one thing that we're working on is developing a tablet-based field recording system that really brings together a number of types of data archaeologically and allows us to record without paper in the field. Several archaeological projects have worked on projects like this. Um, ours is somewhat unique in part because of the conditions at Orinardi. We don't have the internet. And so synchronizing records has proved an interesting hurdle uh, for our software developer. And that's a fun project. And that will be moving towards talking about how to sort of web publish these results as well uh, prior to monographic publication and really in a different way. And we're hoping that this tool will be of interest to archaeologists working elsewhere and that we can make this freely available um, to people who, who want a tablet-based field recording system 
we're working with fun things like QR rec- uh, QR codes in photographs as a way of putting the the data, the context data in photographs and sorting them automatically into the system. So it's fun for me. That's It is more methodological, but there's a lot of intellectual work that goes into thinking even philosophically about the nature of archaeological data. So that's definitely going on into the future. The other project I want to start is... Uh, more art historical, and that's something I'm going to be teaching on and and starting a book on next semester. And that's looking at it's somewhat difficult to define, but the I'm calling it invisibility in Egyptian art. Uh, the idea that the Egyptians very often produced art or aesthetic material that was intended not to be seen, and that the inability to see that visual material was actually central to the way that it, it that it functioned and that it had it was given meaning. Um, very often, this actually gives the art itself a greater degree of agency than we tend to think of as part of art. And there's a whole variety of ways that we can see this operating in ancient Egypt. They change over time. And I don't think that there's a single answer as to how invisibility functions. But um, I've started to sort of produce a taxonomy of invisibility. What are the ways in which this operates in ancient Egypt so that I can I hope, illuminate some of the ways in which invisibility is is an important and intentional part of Egyptian meaning making with visual culture. I think more than any other strand of archaeology, Egyptian archaeology has uh, an image for people in their mind of what it's like. Um, So I guess I want to ask, are there, have there ever been any times in the field that were sort of mysterious or... Uh, sort of play into that that image of uh, like curses and and you know strange mysterious finds, or alternatively, are there any sort of more uh, mundane funny stories from the field that might disabuse people of of that notion? It's so funny because you're right. I mean, this, these strands are there, and on the one hand, people say, "Oh, is it really like Indiana Jones?" And then the other people say. Well, is there anything left to find? I mean, there's been so much in Egypt. You can't possibly have anything left to find. And sometimes there are Indiana Jones moments. And in fact, I think I have more fun than Indiana Jones. And there are still things to find. And sometimes you, you feel like you're following a, a, a bad script even. So I remember the very first year I was digging as a professor at Brown. So I was continuing to work at the site I had worked at as a graduate student, but was able to develop a new project in a new area there. And we found stairs going down into clean sand, which is, I mean, this is like a King Tut moment. There was no King Tut at the end of this. (laughs) But these stairs that were unexpected did go down, and we were able to clear the sand away and get down into a structure that was so intact underground that it had never filled up with sand. You could just walk around in there once you were down in it. And it was a series of connected vaulted corridors Uh, that had been used for the burial originally, the burial of ibis mummies, so mummified birds that were given as votive offerings by pilgrims uh, in the late period in Egypt. And so we had pots and mummified birds all over the place, but most astonishing was just that this architecture was still there, and you were in a space, an ancient space, that no one had been in for ages. And a couple of the, the vaults had actually been converted in the late Roman period into painted churches. So this intersection of different time periods and use of this space underground, completely invisible from the surface. You had no idea it was there. And then these stairs going down, clearing the sand over the several days it took us. And so what's going to be there? What's going to be there? And there it was. Uh, it was this amazing find. So yes, there's still stuff to find in Egypt. And yes, sometimes it is just as exciting as as it looks in the movies. 
And so what about the more mundane aspects of the field? Um, are there any uncomfortable moments that you've had to deal with? Most of the uncomfortable moments that come out in digging have to do with sort of modern culture clashes. And there have been a few that I've encountered. There was the year that we found sticking out of the sand bulk on the side of a, a unit, a gun was sticking out of the side. And it was, I mean, this was a completely corroded, very old gun that some uh, villager had buried there, I don't know, 150, 200 years ago. It was wrapped with wire and the wooden stock had decayed and you had this kind of bronze I think it was bronze. I, it was it was decayed anyway. Barrel of this gun, and the police on site decided, well, that's a weapon, not an artifact. And so they went in. They went in my unit and ripped this thing out of the bulk, which is of course terrible archaeology. You don't rip something out. And I had an enormous fight with the police about whether or not they should have control of this because it was a gun, or I should have control of this because it was an artifact. And in the end, we actually compromised, and I was given the ability to record it properly as an artifact before they took charge of it. But I remember being in the police station, having a screaming fight with the police. Like, you couldn't hurt a dog with this gun. And in fact, my, my workmen who hated the police were so happy that I had stuck up for us uh, against them at this time. But another uncomfortable, <laughs> funnier culture clash moment that I remember in the field was this is a very common type of, of late... Egyptian statue, statuette, where it's a very small man, naked, with an absolutely enormous phallus. You get like basically a, a big penis with a guy kind of lying on it, but it's his. And you can see these. The Brooklyn Museum has a very good collection of these. They're, they're funny and they're very distinctive. And I remember I had a, a female graduate student who was working in a trench where one of these was found one time. And she had, as her chief workman with whom she uh, was partnered, so they worked together to, to run the trench, um, he, she had the most proper Egyptian guy. I've worked with him for years. He's marvelous, beautifully dressed, very proper in his attitude and his manners. Uh, and the workman found the statue, handed it to Ramadan, who then had to hand it to Linda. And so this, this Egyptian guy holding this penis and handing it to this young American female graduate student and the embarrassment of both of them as if they were Feet read these as they had to negotiate the transfer of this object between them. And I was just laughing on the side of the trench. It was great. It happens regularly. You get these funny moments. What advice would you have for budding archaeologists or your students as they're about to graduate or go into the field of archaeology or maybe not? So my advice for budding archaeologists is actually going to sound strange because it's not so much about archaeology. I would encourage students to read and read novels as broadly as possible. Read novels and engage with the real world as it is today in as many of its iterations as you can. So travel. Expose yourself to the variety of human thoughts and human cultures uh, and develop your curiosity. But I really think that novel reading is incredibly important in that. I think it's not possible to write well or to excite your curiosity uh, if you don't engage with literature, frankly. And I think that these are really important things, and particularly to do it outside of archaeology, to make sure that you, as a human being who wants to be a humanist, are thinking about more than just your field. Is there any music that you associate with a certain field season or a certain time in your life having to do with archaeology? Absolutely. Music is really critical for archaeologists, I think, for many of us, and has played such a role in my own field experiences. And I remember for multiple seasons when I was working at Abydos as a graduate student, um, Radiohead was really important to me. And in fact, I had a cassette tape. I had a Walkman at that time. 
the, there were portable CD players, but they didn't like the sand, so it was always better to bring a Walkman. And I recorded a cassette that had the Benz on one side and OK Computer on the other, and I would just listen to this loop for hours uh, while I was was finishing up my planning in the field. And in fact, both of those albums really had prior resonance with the past for me, with the archaeological past. I remember the first time I heard the Benz, I was in a bus crossing the Sinai, which is this unbelievably barren, beautiful landscape. And the relationship between the music and the landscape is something that comes back to me every time I hear that album, and I listen to it a lot. And OK Computer, I actually heard for the first time in Petra. And so that album also has deep resonance archaeologically for me. So when I put these albums, I at that time was debating whether which of these was the best album ever. Um, and I, whichever one I was listening to won. Um, and so listening to them over and over again, one after the other after the other, while in, I remember, dust storms coming. And so racing the dust storm, racing the workmen as they were backfilling towards me. And I was trying to plan all the bricks that I had, had excavated that season before the, the dust got too, too big. I'm listening to Radiohead and, and really crying because I loved this place and I loved these bricks. And I have a deep affinity for mud brick. And so to, to hear this music over and over again in this place I loved with its the resonance of the music for my past interactions with these places, uh, that still comes back to me. Say- 